Welcome to Global Health and Childhood Cancer. I'm your host, Mark Zobeck. Today on the podcast, I will be speaking with Dr. Iglo Goodmansdottir, who is a psychologist from Iceland. In 2000 and 2003, she received a bachelor's and master's degree in psychology. In 2011, she received a licentiate degree in medical science, and in 2017, a PhD in medical science from the Childhood Cancer Research Unit in the Department of Women's and Children's Health at Karolinska Institute in Sweden. And her PhD was entitled, The Effects of Parenting a Child Diagnosed with Cancer, Distress, Resilience, and Vital Exhaustion, Living with Death in Your Face. Her research focuses on the experiences of parents who have a child with cancer and the stress and burnout that they face. She frames it from the perspective of vital exhaustion, which you will hear more about in the episode. She's published many papers on the topic and has held talks and workshops all over the world discussing her results. Her work was even referenced by the president of Iceland in January during his New Year's talk to the nation, which Let's be honest, that kind of citation is every researcher's dream. What's more, Dr. Goodman's daughter is one of those rare academicians that lives what she researches because she is a parent of a childhood cancer patient. So she not only understands parental stress from an academic perspective, she understands it because she's lived it. And you can tell that her insights and passion for this topic were formed by more than a decade of supporting her son through cancer treatment. So I really enjoyed speaking with her, and I think you will enjoy listening to the conversation. In fact, I enjoyed it so much, the conversation actually went for two hours. So this is going to be a two-part episode. So today you are listening to the second of two episodes. So if you missed episode one, you may want to go back into your podcast feed and listen to that one first. And lastly, let me say that her experience, both in research and with childhood cancer, is primarily in Iceland and Sweden, which are both high-income countries. But her experiences are also universal. As a parent, having a child with a life-threatening illness is something that any parent with a child with cancer can relate to, no matter where in the world. Likewise, the experience of stress during treatment is also universal. So her insights are applicable no matter where you are, which is why I thought this was a very important conversation to have. Okay, without further ado, I give you my talk with Dr. Iglo, Goodman's daughter. What is the relationship that you were able to measure between stress and the scores of vital exhaustion in the parents? Yeah, uh, what, I, what I measured was I used the impact of event scale, which is a well-known traumatic uh, instrument and uh, where you look into uh, intrusion and uh, uh, over uh, three themes I'm trying to remember now is um, intrusion and uh, avoidance and uh, hyper arousal I think yes yes thank you thank you so much and this one is I mean the ESR uh, is is well known so so the reason I used this was because it's well well known and it's and it's very practical and the reason why, of course, is because I'd read so many articles, I mean, hundreds of them, uh, where I, I was not complying with that, that um, your child 
cancer diagnosis uh, was not traumatic. I mean, and that is the newest studies now. I mean, nobody dared to say that. But but the studies I, I was reading was on, of course, uh, that is a traumatic event. So I was I was actually reading so much on to one of my supervisors said, but is that the diagnosis itself a traumatic event? I said, of course. And uh, so as this was a question to me, I, of course, read hundreds of articles on that. And the ISR I, I've known for years so before this. So it's, and it's measuring without a score. It is measuring, it's very practical, uh, the, the traumatic uh, impact the event is having on you. So using that one, knowing that the hyperarousal for me was in my brain, uh, knowing all the parents, including myself, having troubles sleeping, being hyper aroused, startling, is or startled, and so on. I mean, being on the edge all the time. So, so I thought this was just common sense for me. So I used that one to look at. For me, it was not the score because there is no clinical score on the ISR. It is not; it's a clinical uh, measurement uh, instrument. But having the three themes, I was so interested to see as in the vital exhaustion uh, instrument, the Maastricht, uh, they have different themes. One of them is sleeping problems. And so for me, I did a factor analysis when I have looked into if high scores, you can score the ISR, even though it doesn't have a clinical score. You can score high or low and so on. So I wanted to look at high scores and high scores on, on the Maastricht. And it was a very, very, very high correlation. I think it was 0.654 or something like that. Uh, but then I also did uh, a factor analysis. I, then I, th- then or second, I looked into the themes, then the intrusion, the avoidance, and the hyperarousal. And I did a factor analysis on the on the master questionnaire, and I found out that the themes in the master questionnaire and the hyperarousal themes had the highest correlation. Uh, I think it was uh, 0.694. So it was really, really high. And uh, in in that sense, that for me, clinically, proving that sleep is one of the things being most affected, which is of great importance because developing something like vital exhaustion or working yourself out of vital exhaustion, sleep is the most important factor. So, I mean... And then, of course, I went into reading articles on oxidative stress and so on. So in in the, all the realizing that in the end, I found out much more than in my thesis that Alzheimer research have shown that if you don't release oxidative stress when you're sleeping or you release oxidative stress when you're sleeping, if you don't sleep well, you don't release as much oxidative stress which then would pile up in the head. And this is, for one, looked at in Alzheimer research. So in my brain, I could like generalize this to so much looking at what is the most important thing for not developing vital exhaustion, or if you have developed it, if we don't have had the possibility of intervening before, what is the most important factor to help you getting out of the state or the condition? that is healthy sleep. 
So uh, the interesting thing, looking into also the themes of the impact of event scale, was that parents of children with cancer have differently to other populations a very low score, a low correlation to avoidance. Then you can say, okay, what is normal? You get into a traumatic state and what do you do? You try to avoid the situation, try to avoid the scene because that is how we are as humans. Uh, we, we don't want to be experiencing difficult situations. So we tend not to drive that road that we had the car or crash or whatever. But having a child with cancer, this is not possible. You have to stand in that situation. You can't run away. So you, you have to look at those syringe again. You have to uh, go to that hospital again. You have to. So this was also very different in, in other trauma research that my group did have the lowest correlation with exhaustion when it came to avoidance. Why? Because they couldn't avoid it. So what is normal, and this was very interesting because what is normal when you when you get traumatized, uh, it takes 10 to 12 years to go to therapy because you have the possibility to avoid the situation, so everything that reminds you of. But as a parent of a child with cancer, you are forced into the situation. You're forced again and again and again. And this also must, for me, cause more stress, maybe in a good way, in that sense that you can't avoid and you can't wait 10 to 12 years because you crack before that. Uh, so the interesting thing was then after reading all the trauma research and all the endocrinical research and all the, the uh, cardiologist research, I realized that what was different was that very high correlation with hyperarousal which for me was not strange at all. Very high for intrusion, of course. And this is again why I say that the new DSM-5 is problematic because now parents of children with cancer are not traumatized anymore because they only, only if you say it like that, have an adjustment disorder. And having a child with a lethal disease, which is, the child is not dying today or tomorrow, uh, and you have to adapt to it. The problem is the feeling that is co strongly correlated, which I have not been able to, to measure, not yet, is shame. Because when everything is over, what is the most uh, common sentence you hear? Aren't you happy? Now everything is done, right? Why aren't you smiling? After 30 months of an ALL treatment, that is when you crack. Because in those 30 months, and we have around 50% of children having an ALL disease. Uh, I don't remember the name. But, I mean, 30 months. I mean, one year of chemical infusions, watching your child's hair fall off, watching your child bleeding from the mouth, from the anus, from you don't get used to that, but you have to. You have to function. After 30 months, you'll be put into the waiting room of hell. 
for five years. So the results that I looked at, as I looked at, I took the ALL parents and the other diseases because I, I couldn't, other cancer diagnosis, because it was impossible to divide it too much. We would have lost, lost power, statistical power. But we see that at the ALL patients or the parents, we see that after 30 months, that is when the levels of vital exhaustion gets up. It is not a, a slope down. It is like a, a slope. It is like almost a flat line, and then it goes up a bit after 30 months. For me, that's not strange because that is when you get out of the hospital, suddenly you're in the insecurity state. So you understand what I'm meaning? So, yeah. So parents experience more vital exhaustion once treatment starts to come to an end. Yeah, because I mean, because that is where, and this was for both my groups, the ALL parents as well as the other ones, that it was not a, a non-significant difference between the groups. But I mean, we could see a clinical uh, difference. But we saw that, I mean, for both groups, 7.5 years, it was going down to a normal level. It was 9.7 years, it was going down to the level of the norm group. So if you think that in the ALL group, we have two and a half years with active treatment, and in that active treatment, we don't see it go down at all. It goes up, non-significantly, but it goes up. It goes from 19.7, I think, to 20.5. It's not significant, but it's the trend that is interesting that you see its peaks in the end of treatment. For the other group, we see the same, but it's like more a flat line. It doesn't go down until seven years after diagnosis. And that is what is interesting in the negative matter, of course, because you can see that it is not like, that is why I'm saying it's a condition that develops over time. And the insecurity after the treatment ends, that is what is killing parents. You sit and you wait and you go to that blood test again, or you go to that thing. I mean, and the insecurity, the child is not cured. The child has finished treatment. That is a completely different story. So it is the same. I've been working with a lot of um, adult cancer patients. They all say the same, same. And if you think of it, the active treatment, at least you are in the safety of the hospital, you're in somebody's arms, you are, then suddenly you're let go. And then you have to wait for the holy five years. So that is why we can see that it's there. Of course, before that, we can develop the physical exhaustion, but it's afterwards when you let go that you crack. Because you can't crack before, not when you're taking care of your child. Who should do it then? So that is what's different being the primary patients as an adult and then being a primary patients uh, in terms of taking care of my child. You can't crack. So you have to like do that extra. You cannot lay down and cry because your child is not supposed to see that. So you cry in the bathroom. And so it's that also that extra stress that I feel that we have to acknowledge that extra stress and you're not supposed to cry in front of your child that might be dying. But we have to acknowledge that you are the primary patient as a parent. And this is, I think, the, the hidden 
variable that we tend to forget because all my adult patients say and the grown-up, the kids maybe 15, 16, they're worried about the parents. The grown-up that's having cancer, they say, I feel more for my family. I mean, I'm not afraid of dying. I'm not afraid of because you're in control. The people around you are not in control and they're trying to do everything that you for you that you will not like collapse from the anxiety. So you will always take that extra effort and extra strain because you will do everything that in this matter that your child will survive. So you will take everything, every look, everything from the doctors and everything, you will just take it and don't say this here. Just say it to me. So this is, I mean, being a parent of a child with cancer, you will always, maybe not do double up, but as much as you can, because you cannot take the cancer away, but you will do everything that you that to maximize the possibilities of a child of surviving. So all anxiety, everything, you will always try to take everything that has to do with the cancer that you can except taking the drugs into your system, you will take care of that. And you will say to your child, no, that's, I mean, yeah, I will. And this, you know, as a parent, that these kids, they know uh, if you're lying. So you cannot lie either, but you have to like try to, so you have all your sensors are highly pitched always. And like with ALL for 30 months. And here in Iceland is for the 18 months, the last 18 months you're giving uh, pills and so on, and you do it in your own home. You're also a, um, a doctor and a nurse. And so this job, I think it must be the hardest job you can ever get. Yeah, I think that's a good way to say it. You describe the heroic struggle that our parents go through very well. And I'll also confess that you described me very well, too. In that if you had asked me before this conversation, so when do the parents start to feel better? I would say probably towards the end of treatment because treatment doesn't seem like very much fun. So it's a revelation to me hearing that, you know, the vital exhaustion scores and the stress scores tend to peak at 30 months and it takes almost a decade to feel normal again. I think that's something that all doctors and all of the... (laughs) Any medical provider involved in the care of children with cancer really needs to hear like that one statistic. So, yeah. I agree. And that that is the beauty of it. Like your question, is there some benefit of having all these hats? Yes, it is. Because I've had the privilege of meeting, like I said earlier, with doctors, been working in the field for 30 years, being humble enough to say, I never, ever thought about this. Thank you. And this is like, I mean, the thank you is in the humbleness that we are working together. Because if I would never choose this path, but I I was thrown into it. So as I was thrown into it, my obligation is to teach it, not in arrogance, just this is the way it is. And now my studies are showing it. And this is the way it is, actually. So we should all work on it. Like, because we all think differently i mean 15 years ago i would not even i didn't even know the world of cancer like in that sense um, leukemia isn't that just some kind of blood cancer but in in the the humbleness that we can all learn from each other a mother 
of a child with cancer, being a psychologist as well, if I can learn something that I can bring forward, we should all like be able to speak together, you know, because who will benefit from that? The kids and the parents in the future. So that is like every doctor, every parent, every child will benefit that we can work together as a team. We don't have to own all the knowledge as individuals. We, we should always share it and say, like, this is what I found out from this journey of mine, and I decided to do this with it, and I will not keep it to myself. Why should I? Because I know there will be and children and, and, and doctors that are, I mean, will benefit from this knowledge that, ah, like all the later clinics, like, okay, yeah, we understand now. Of course, like they said on the CCI, of course, one of the nurses, of course, parents will not say we feel like in front of the child. And she said, it's in Austria. She said, we've been working in later clinics for a long time. A simple thing we never thought of. Of course, as a parent, you will never say that in front of the child because the child is never supposed to be a burden. So you have to take the parents aside and how are you doing? And so in so it's many nuances that we have to learn and being able to do it, having walked this path or not, we should never ever uh, be too arrogant to saying this is my knowledge. What should I do with it if I can't put it forward? I mean, what should I do with the things I know if I don't want to share it? That's just stupid for me. I mean, I did this for all for myself and all the other parents around the world that, and and the doctors and the nurses and the, and I mean, like if I get something new under the sun, like we say in Iceland, I mean. Why Why should I keep it to myself? Who would benefit from that? I mean, clinical research should always be to share, from my opinion. That's just the way it is. So, Yeah, absolutely. That's a good message. So we have a few minutes left, and I think your description of the problem, very apt description, leads to a natural question, which is, is there some way that we can help to either prevent vital exhaustion in the parents before it happens, or minimize the impact of it as they begin to feel it have you looked into that at all and what answers are available yeah i mean i mean uh, as as my my uh, study on on vital exhaustion uh, showed the correlation between the levels of traumatic stress symptoms and the development of uh, vital exhaustion was so clear that for me i mean the intervention model i made was for me, in the in the utopia, uh, we should follow them for ten years, of course. But in the model, I was I wanted to look into. I I um, developed a model of uh, having three arms, intervention arms, uh, as I wanted to assess uh, symptoms of traumatic stress to begin with. Because I mean, I can see that that's correlated with the levels of of uh, vital exhaustion developed by the condition. So assessing that, traumatic stress symptoms in the beginning with, and uh, if we see, as I also looked into resilience and sense of coherence, 
uh, I made these three arms that, I mean, high levels of traumatic stress symptoms and low resilience, uh, then we should have an intervention arm of focusing on helping people to develop more resilience or they should have more support. And then I had the, the intervention arm of um, high, I mean, okay, I didn't even look into low traumatic stress scores because I didn't have any. So so all obviously the three arms were high levels of symptom uh, symptoms of traumatic stress because all of them had higher levels than normal. So but the thing was that I wanted to have three arms because we can't we can't have more. So one of them the those having high levels of traumatic stress but high resilience like we can develop over life uh, they should have normal support um, in psychological intervention, uh, including into that one, just doing the psychological uh, evaluations. I wanted, and this is my dream, that we measure the biological factors as well. That will say cortisol in the beginning, in saliva or in blood, that depends uh, on what the group is ready to do. but. Because the reason for this is that in the beginning and for the first three to six months, as a parent, you are not very well connected to the way you're feeling. And this might sound horrible, but in the sense that you are surviving for your child, I mean, knowing this from personal level and speaking to so many parents that for the first three months, you kind of hardly know your name because you're knowing a world of cancer and your child is in it. So so my dream is to use the ISR, for example, in the beginning as a baseline, also doing a, a biological measure in for the first three months, focusing on cortisol. Uh, after six months, I would like to to add into the vital exhaustion, the master questionnaire. Uh, we could do that as a baseline level. We don't have to go so much into that. But my thought is traumatic stress symptoms, adding to that biological measurements uh, in saliva and or blood, cortisol to begin with, after three to six months, we will also we'll take the cortisol as well and also, of course, the, the psychological measurements. And then we will also start measuring who will see some differences in cytokines. So this is like combining the psychological measurements with biological measurements because I think that that is my hypothesis that we don't know and not even five years after the diagnosis, we're not even in such contact with how we really are. So then then we could look at biologically okay, uh, wow, you really have high cortisol levels. You would need some sleep support. And this I forgot to mention because uh, we have seen in the overproduction of cytokines, we have seen in different uh, conditions like in IBS and Crohn's and so on uh, and uh, eating disorders that low doses of SSRI medications have uh, lower the levels of overproduction of cytokines. This is very new studies, but I'm, and I'm not into 
uh, throwing SSRI medications into everybody. But this is something, this is some kind of interaction there. So um, the reason I would like to use the biological measurements as well is that before the person acknowledge uh, maybe the state he or she are in, we could say, okay, now you obviously, your body is, your body, you can see that in your body is overstressed. So it would be good to help you with blah, blah, blah. I mean, uh, sleeping aid in some kind. Or at least, I mean, it doesn't even have to be in tablet form, but at least that we can, as soon as we can intervene, the better, the, the less risk of developing a full-blown vital exhaustion condition. So that is why I would like to look at it in, in a two-level manner, because knowing this by myself and, and with all the other parents, you you are not so clear how you are, and you get used to not sleeping much and well, and you don't know, after some time, you don't even know when people say, how, how are you sleeping, and you just like, uh, compared to what, I mean. So, so in that sense, I would like to to use also biological measurements, and of course, do the follow up. And in my dreams, up to seven point five years, I would like to, according to the five year waiting waiting room. So I would I would like to measure people's well being, both psychologically and uh, biologically. Yeah, that sounds good. I mean, it sounds like a fascinating intervention. Is this something that is already underway or in development? When can we kind of look forward to hearing results? Uh, well, as soon as I've, uh, I mean, the the model is there. I've developed it. So what I did over Christmas and uh, and now is like, and after Japan, it is like, because I had many people ask me this, are, are you already doing studies? And I'm just like, uh, no, because I live now in Iceland and I ha- I just haven't had time to, and like you know, it's it's only just one one a, a year since I I I finished, and you know when when it's just lying in some uh, your thesis is lying in some uh, library, and uh, you have to go out and present it and uh, I understood when I was in Japan now that people don't tend to do intervention models and 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 I was just like whoa I have to like at least get it out there and doing that here in Iceland Iceland is so small that I would need to have an international working team on that now now it's the time for me to find the team because I realize more and more that this this is not out there. It isn't out there. And I'm just like, really? I know there is a research, big uh, population in Argentina. Uh, one of my friends, they have around 5,000 cancer parents there. And they are really into trying the model. And I was just, then I was speaking to them uh, in uh, Japan now. And I got the question, have you started using it? And I was just like, no. because for me, I haven't even thought of starting off here in Iceland because we have to have the ethical um, papers and everything. And I just, it's only been a year and I tend to think that, well, everybody's doing this or or it's not interesting enough. And uh, 
I mean, I have my own clinic and so on. So I haven't, I haven't been able to. And I found before I went to Japan, I was just like I said to to the person around me. I said, I'm a clinician. I've been working on my own clinic for 17 years now uh, with everything, not cancer. I'm, I'm, I'm a clinical psychologist, and I feel that now is the time. I just need to know where to promote myself. Actually, I mean, the the committee when I was you know, was defending my thesis. Uh, it was, uh, I mean, two doctors and one psychologist, and they were saying, have you already started testing this? And I said, of course not. And <laughs> they said, you should. And I was just, okay. So this is the time. So this is, like now I'm realizing that that's why I'm, I'm for the next months, I'm not going to add up to my days on my clinic because I realized that research is my thing and I would love to I would love to be a supervisor on this kind of research, and uh, but then we need something bigger than only Iceland. We need some international, and and that's why I, I like next SIOP. Of course, I will be there, uh, and I was getting some invitations for for the IPSO and so on. So, so it's like just do it, and uh, when you are like like finishing a research, you find. A, think of that it's not so interesting and then suddenly you come to your psyop thing and and your models make sense to other people and just like wow that's that's nice sure well it sounds like you have some exciting things on the horizon then some exciting projects yeah we'll have to do something about it i understand now so well so just to begin to wrap up I'm just curious what you would say from your experience both as a parent and as a researcher in this area if you could Give one piece of advice to the medical teams taking care of patients and parents as to how best to support parents in the midst of this traumatic and exhausting experience of a childhood cancer treatment. What would you say? Oof. Um, (laughs) The biggest, biggest advice I would give is as a parent and as a psychologist, but as a parent, because I've met too many parents being having been uh, put in shame uh, because parents will rarely, at least in the northern countries and so on, let you know as the medical team that you are anxious, that you can't sleep and so on. And this and this sleep factor is like everything to not developing vital exhaustion and, and a lethal, possible lethal condition. If the parent is brave enough to ask you for help as the child's uh, doctor for sleeping aid or something, do not, and or anxiety, like because anxiety and trouble sleeping is, for, for the most parents, like the biggest problem, which is normal because, I mean, you, you, you're constantly anxious that your child would die. And if you read the, the, my latest, the, my systemic review, you will, you will read Yalom, one of the uh, worries of fear is your own death. But what is worse than your own death, that is your child, your offspring is dying. So both me and so many parents have been met with, and, and my as a person, being in situations where I have been bold enough to ask for help for sleeping and I've got this answers or attitude that I was some kind of pill addict and 
if you ever, ever need help sleeping, this is when. If you ever, ever need help regarding anxiety, this is when. So having a young doctor, maybe 28, 32, looking at you with arrogant eyes and saying, you should just go through this without being drugged. Don't you ever, ever do that? Because that parent will never ask you of help again. And the shame blaming is horrible because parents are really, really superheroes when it comes to this. And they will really, really not take the child's space. But if they do, and of course, the doctors and the team should be before and say, it is very normal that people get anxious, of course, and people can't sleep, blah, blah, blah. Of course, the team should be before. But if ever parents ask, do not put shame onto the parents because they will stay without sleep for weeks, months, and years. And they will not hate you for it, but they will hate themselves for being so weak because they are fighting for the child's lives and they will walk up to their neck before they ask you for help. And when they do, don't make them shameful about it. It should be a routine that when you speak with the parents about the condition, about the child's illness, you should generalize and say it is very common that people have problems sleeping, blah, blah, blah. You should invite, because you're not making any drug addicts out of parents or children with cancer, but you can kill them if you are young and uh, not mature enough in your work that you will only have to look at them once and they will never ask you again and they will be ashamed forever because it's not their illness. So that is my Q&A for this. Never ever put shame to parents fighting for the child's survival. Never. Try to put yourself in that person's shoes. So I think that more psychological know-how, more empathy training. So yeah, no, no shame, never. That's good. I think that's mm-hmm. a a good reminder for the doctors, for me and others, that you know we impact more than just the patients. As you said, we we impact the families, we impact the parents, and can you know be a force for good, or we can by our responses hurt them too. So thank you for that. And lastly, you told me, I guess you recently had the privilege of being cited by the president of Iceland in his New Year speech or in some major national speech. Can you tell us a little bit about what he said and what that experience was like for you? Because that's, uh, that's, a, that's a big citation. So congrats on that. Yeah, that was uh, pretty cool, actually. And I was in Italy and um, uh, I've been fighting for the word exhaustion here in Iceland. And as we are small uh, in the northern countries uh, around us, Nordic countries, uh, we've been speaking about uh, exhaustion for around at least two decades that you can get exhausted in work and life. But here in Iceland, we tend to have the culture of um, 
working is uh, the deed and uh, you should work until you die and you're not sick until you can cannot uh, walk and so on so and we've had we had like four five months ago we had a great campaign like on burnout in in uh, the working sphere and and I was like been living in Denmark and Sweden and looking at exhaustion and then working in the clinical field as a psychologist. I've like been uh, I was privileged to to work in a medical clinic there in a team with patients with having severe chronic pain and uh, long term distress. And I was asked to do two lectures and I could decide what I wanted to do. So one of them was uh, having the the name everybody can get exhausted because i thought we were too much into uh, the burnout field and being uh, having studied uh, work psychology and so on i missed the link of life exhaustion so uh, i did a lecture on that and for this uh, population which was perfectly <laughs> healthy like uh, normal uh, icelanders and uh, suddenly I was all over the place. I was in radio and persons. I had five, ten people after each lecture coming and said, you were speaking to me. And I was just like, I was really surprised as I'm being a provocative type. I had my last slide because that is quite Icelandic. Uh, exhaustion isn't that just a word for uh, being a wimp and yeah, that's pretty Icelandic. And I said, of course, no. And running all last fall, I've been working two jobs and uh, starting to burn off myself. Uh, I decided to take my first three weeks off. Uh, went after Christmas to my friend in Italy. And uh, before that, I'd used the word exhaustion. And it's, I, I was... Um, translating to Icelandic and uh, and explaining in the, my lectures that it was not the same as burnout and so on. And the 1st of uh, January, I uh, was going for a walk with my friend in Italy and, and her artistic son uh, suddenly got an, a message on a messenger and uh, the president is quoting you. And I was just like, what? Uh, and then I sent a message to this person and she said to me the president is really quoting you and the new speech and this is like the speech the president of Iceland is, is holding every first of the year and blah blah and I was just what and she was saying as now and tv and I was just like, oh so I went in and looked at it and uh, suddenly <laughs> and I'm really like I've become kind of shy so and suddenly it was like I was quoted directly, like the name of my lecture is Everybody Can Get Exhausted. And suddenly I heard the president, which is really, really nice and sweet guy. And, and he was talking about mental health. And this has been been a lot here in Iceland now for the last year. And And he was speaking about suicide of young people and so on. And suddenly he was saying... And what to do? Everybody can get exhausted, says Dr. Eglup Vimestotter, doctor in medical science. And then he continued uh, citing me, and I was just like, what? Uh, so one lecture, like continuously since June 2018, 
every three weeks on a medical clinic in small Iceland, uh, introducing a term not used, life exhaustion, suddenly has become the words of the president. And, uh, and the era now is that I can see the changes of uh, not using the term burnout all the time, but also the term exhaustion and life exhaustion. And that's pretty cool. Even though we're only 340,000 people, one person can make some change. That's cool. Yeah. Seeing your work penetrate into the wider culture is a uh... It's an exciting thing. I think every researcher, <laughs> it's every researcher's dream. So congratulations. Um, Thank you. Well, we've been talking for a while, so I don't want to exhaust you. <laughs> um, so, so I think this is a good place to leave off. If people want to contact you, if you've caught their imagination with your research, or if, you know, if they heard you talking about the intervention you want to do and they're interested to learn more, is there a way for people to get in touch with you? Yeah. Uh, it's my email, eyglo1972 at gmail.com. So, uh, so that's my name and uh, 1972 at gmail.com. That's the easiest way. Okay. We can post your email address up on the website, yeah, g- yeah. ghccpod.com. And uh, if you go to the website, we'll have some other information about Dr. Goodman Dotter's work and references to various papers that she's produced. So go check out more of her work at the website, ghccpod.com. Okay. Thank you so much for talking to us and spending the time to explain your work. And um, thank you for what you've done. And thank you to Benjamin too, and his experience and that you've used his experience for a lot of good. So we really owe a debt to him. Thank you so much, Mark. 